you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. Hi there, it's John Horn. You might know me as the host of The Frame on KPCC and LAist.com. The Frame has been on hiatus since March of 2020 when the pandemic arrived. And since that time, I've been continuing to report on arts and entertainment. And now I'm back in your podcast feeds, not with The Frame, but with Retake. Every week, we're going to examine this unique moment in entertainment, a time of unprecedented industry change, and one that many consider a modern golden age of storytelling. And we'll explore whether the stories Hollywood tells about itself really reflect what's going on. We'll challenge conventional show business wisdom, tracking the industry's attempts, or lack thereof, to become more inclusive, talking to insiders with a distinct point of view and keeping tabs on the forces that maintain the status quo. We're also going to recommend a few things to check out that we think deserve your attention. This is Retake from KPCC and Elias Studios. On this week's episode, will 2022 mark the peak of the peak TV era? Plus my conversation with comedian and the star of the new movie Easter Sunday, Joe Coy. But first, here's my retake for this week. David Zaslav is the chief executive of Warner Brothers Discovery. He's been in the job for fewer than four months. Yet, even in that short window, he and the new managers of subsidiary Warner Media are well into overhauling that media company. And the latest victim of that restructuring are Latinos. This week, the company canceled this critically acclaimed show on HBO Max just a month after it premiered. The song said, America the Beautiful. I think they oversold it. Girls, give America a chance. What do you say? That's the series Gordita Chronicles. It's about a family that emigrates from the Dominican Republic to Miami in the 1980s. For a country that calls itself Land of the Free, this place sure is expensive. The motives behind abandoning the series? Well, HBO Max said it's shifting away from family programming, and Warner Brothers Discovery said Thursday that it's out to save $3 billion are pretty much irrelevant to its impact. Given Hollywood's horrible history in casting and also empowering Latinos both in front of and behind the camera, the loss of just one show anchored by a Latino cast is devastating. Two of the executive producers of Gordita Chronicles, Eva Longoria and Zoe Saldana, said they were, quote, heartbroken by the decision, and they hope another network will pick up Gordita Chronicles, as was the case with other popular but canceled shows, including Community and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. People who identify as Latino or Hispanic, they make up 19% of the nation's population. But if you watch TV or subscribe to a streaming platform or attend movies, you would hardly guess that. According to a UCLA study last year, Latinos accounted for barely 7% of the lead roles on broadcast TV 
in the 2019-2020 season, and the numbers were even worse on cable and streaming channels. If you go to the multiplex, the data is just as grim. A USC study found that in 2019, which was the last full year of movie releases before the pandemic, Latinos didn't even account for 5% of roles in that year's 100 most popular films. So a movie like Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, even though it was made almost entirely by white filmmakers, was the rare exception. Zaslav and his team run a public company and their shareholders expect him to make money, so they're under no obligation to keep making a show like Gordita Chronicles if it's not part of their business plan. Although, slashing Zaslav's compensation, which was an altogether obscene $246 million last year, certainly would help the bottom line a bit. The fact is, though, that Latinos make up a disproportionate share of entertainment consumers, buying about a quarter of all movie tickets and accounting for more than a third of all streaming viewers, well over their percentage of the population. And the country's Latino population isn't about to start shrinking. So HBO Max can try to court that audience or it can do what it did, walk away. Coming up after the break, comedian Joe Coy. Also, you're going to hear a quiz at the end of the show, and you're not allowed to Google the answer. We're on the honor system here, but I'm going to let you think about it for a little bit. Okay, these are the names of five reality TV series. One I made up, so see if you can spot the fake. Family Karma, about Indian Americans. Moonshiners, about moonshiners in Appalachia. Switcheroo, where contestants switch totally different jobs. Pig Royalty, a competition show about, yes, pigs. Dr. Oakley, Yukon Vet, about a vet in the Yukon. We'll see how you did in a little bit. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. And now my conversation with stand-up comedian and actor Joe Coy. Coy has made two Netflix comedy specials. One's called Live from Seattle, the other coming in hot. He's now starring as a version of himself in the film Easter Sunday, where he plays a struggling actor going home to visit his Filipino-American family for Easter. Here he is in a scene with actress Lydia Gaston, who plays his mom. Joseph, what time will you be here on Sunday? I don't know, Mom. I'm really busy. I just tested for this pilot. You're going to be a pilot? No. A a network pilot for, like, a TV show. Ah, you're playing a pilot on the TV show. No, a lawyer. You could have been a lawyer, Joseph, if you only applied yourself. Mom, I gotta go. Coy plays a character who's not only trying to balance work and parenting, but also dealing with Hollywood producers who want him to speak with a foreign accent, which he doesn't have. When we talked, I asked Coy about the importance of representation and about making a movie about a Filipino family. So first question, your movie is called Easter Sunday. And as far as I know, it's not Easter. And I'm not making this up, but Friday is National Underwear Day. And 
National Water Balloon Day, depending on your mood. So okay. Easter Sunday is coming up, coming out on National Underwear Day. Is that how it works now? I, you know, I asked Dan and the whole team over at uh, Amblin, when is it National Underwear Day? And they said it was today. So yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow, actually. So that's when uh, I go, we have to release the movie then. To be honest, you know what happened? It was supposed to be released uh, April, but um, just the theaters just, you know, the, the mask mandate just got lifted and people weren't going to the theaters. And uh, this is the beautiful thing about Steven Spielberg is he wanted this movie to have a great shot at being in the theaters. And he was like, let's move it and we'll keep the name. And that's what happened. I think every movie has a weird origin story. Yours, as I understand it, is pretty crazy. So correct me if I'm wrong. You're having sushi at the Beverly Hills restaurant, Sugarfish, and you're trying to eat, and somebody's taking pictures of you while you're trying to eat. So you move and take a seat at the bar. And then this yep. guy next to you doesn't leave you alone. And it turns out he's producer Dan Land. So what happened? <laughs> yeah. So uh, to be honest, that the, the two girls that were taking pictures of me and they were very sweet. Don't get me wrong. It's just like I was eating. And um, so we moved to the sushi bar. My friend Chase DeRusso sat next to me. And I was like, I was like, dude, you're not going to believe this. But they're still like kind of like taking pictures and stuff and like videos. And it's just kind of annoying. And he goes, how about if I do this? And he kind of turns his body and leans back. So he's blocking the camera. But when he does that, Dan Lin is sitting next to him. And now he sees a clear shot of me. And he goes like this. He goes, hi, Joe Coy. And so now I'm like, oh, God. And I don't know who Dan is. You know what I mean? I don't know that this is the guy that produced It 1, It 2, you know, Aladdin, all the Lego movies. I don't know who this guy is. And he's just so sweet and so nice. And he was complimenting me and talking about my stand-up. And it was just such a great meeting. And I, and I loved how it all organically happened. The organic part of it is even crazier. Dan probably told you this. And... Only in Hollywood do you have a Pilates instructor who comes to your house. But his white Pilates instructor comes to his house and says she's really tired because she was out late watching comedy, I think, in Oxnard. And Dan's like, who are you watching? And she goes, this guy named Joe Coy. And he's like, who is he? And she's like, check yeah. him out. And I think at that point, you were just doing YouTube videos. Is that right? Uh, you know, uh, at that point, the last time I had a special was like, in 2011 or something like that. So it's like, yeah, it basically what was keeping me afloat was whatever was online at that point, you know? So, and that, and that, that, this is a perfect example of, I'm so, this is so cool. You're the first person to ever do this and say this question, because now you've, you just opened my eyes to something that I never even thought of, but you're right. It was a white Pilates instructor. And, and you go to Hollywood to try and, you know, you know, try and get your voice out there and be heard. You know what I mean? And I was, you know, I was telling, I was a storyteller. Like I, I enjoyed hearing other comics that told their story and I enjoyed relating to that. So I was telling my story about my mom, but, and I know you can relate to it, but for some reason in the industry, everyone was the same note was like, Oh, it's too specific. No one's going to get it. And it just, it bothered me. And now that you said that, how ironic that a white instructor, so you know, basically told an Asian man about this guy's Asian routine 
that for some reason is specific, but it's not because it's obviously relatable. If this white lady drove all the way to Oxnard to come see me, I, I never even looked at it that way. The movie is, I assume, kind of a macro adaptation of your story and your family's story, but yeah. in a micro sense, in specific incidents and things that happen, how much of real life is peppered through this movie? Things that actually happen to you, like the audition. Is that part of, of your own story? Yeah, I mean, it, it, thank, thank you, Ken uh, Chang, for uh, writing the first draft. But it, what's beautiful about this movie is we got to add so much, uh, a lot of it. You know, Jay Chandrasekhar, great director, also great actor, great producer. Uh, he, he and I collaborated in a lot of scenes that we rewrote. And then, of course, Katie uh, came in and she uh, punched up a lot and wrote a lot of scenes. And uh, we came up with this and, and it was so much fun because that was the one thing I wanted to tell him. I was like, look, it's going to be specific about Filipinos, but I want it to be heavily relatable. I want it to be a family story, but we also have to explain my culture. I want people to learn about my culture as well. But at the same time, just walk away going, hey, my mom is just like his mom. Like, So when you see the stuff like the Balak Bayan box where we're loading up gifts into the box, that's exactly how it is. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say all Filipinos, but damn near all of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? That And that's the beauty about learning about immigrant people that come to this country. You know, for some reason, when we see an immigrant come to this country, we think, okay, you won. So stop complaining. You're American now. You're successful. But they don't understand that when they come here, their responsibility is not only take care of the family that they came here with, but they got a bunch of people back home that they have to take care of. And they're going to take whatever little money that they make here and give it back to them. And, and when you see stuff like that Balak Bayan box, you're going to learn about, you know, that, that Filipino coworker that you work with and just understand and appreciate just how much is riding on her back at this same job that you have, you know? So uh, the, the Balak Bayan box, the, the Santa Nino, the, you know, all that stuff is, is literally from my life. You talk about your mom or a fictionalized version of your mom is very prominent in this story. Your mom comes to the country, and I'm not talking about assimilation. I'm talking about being seen and having a community. There's no social media, uh, no Facebook. She doesn't have any way, probably, to figure out who, who her people are. And again, this is not about assimilation. This is about finding people that you have something in common with. Yes. Was part of her life experience part of what formed your view of how Asians are seen in this country? You know, it's hard to speak to a generation now and really explain what an immigrant had to go through back in the 60s and 70s and the racism that they had to deal with and the, and the way they were depicted and, and seen, uh, you know, through media, you know. And, and you know, the, the stuff that my mom had to, had to have a thick skin, you know, just to see a cartoon with an Asian character buck tooth and slant eyed but oh, 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 was funny to everyone but they had to suck it up and take it and just be like hey i'm just happy i'm here <laughs> okay that's that's normal so you think that's funny okay and that that's one thing we need to explain to to this generation the they had to go through it was horrible and yes my mom had to literally i do the joke on stage about my mom would walk up to people that were just brown like literally, she would go to church, one, 
you know, because it's church, you know, that's the one time where she feels accepted because everyone in church believes in the same person. So we're all the same today in church. But as she's listening to the sermon, she's looking around trying to find other people that are Filipino. And if she saw someone that's a little darker skin, she would walk up to him. You know how much, you know how much courage that has to be <laughs> to walk up to somebody you don't know and ask them what they are. And, and my mom did it all the time. I would watch her as a kid. So that's why this movie is so important. And, and that's why it's like, you know, I, it, it hurts when I to think to, that that she came to this country in 1969. And here we are at 2022. And this is going to be the first time she's ever seen this ever. So we can't close the door anymore. We got to keep that door open and, and, and make this possible, not just for Filipinos, but for every immigrant that comes to this country. Let them feel seen. What I suspect you're trying to work at is I might be Filipino, Filipino-American, and I have a crazy family, just like you have a crazy family. Yeah. This isn't something that is ethnically true. This is something that is authentic about <laughs> people who have parents. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and in my stand-up, it's like, and, and, and here's the thing. I think the reason why I'm successful and why I'm able to sell the tickets that I do to the, the wide demographic that I have is I think people are also saying, finally, we get to hear another story, a, a different version and relate to it. And they're entertained by it. They love it. They love coming and seeing my mom yell at me at the top of her lungs. Always, you know, when I do the jokes about her on stage and because people are like relating to it. Like I, I get every ethnicity walking up to me at the end of the show going, my mom did the same shit. And it feels good. It feels good to hear that. It feels good for me. It feels good for Filipinos. And then it also feels good for people that aren't Filipino, that uh, my mom is not just the only crazy mom out there. There are crazy moms all over the world. And, and that's what we need to hear. We need to hear more of those stories, not just Filipino specific. I want to hear everyone's story about your family. I want to hear about your family. I want to learn about your family and then laugh with your family the same way we laugh at mine. I want to ask you about the role that streamers are now playing in comedians' careers. And this is a movie that's debuting in theaters. But on the one hand, there are more options than there ever were when you could do a comedy special. It might be on Netflix, but it might be on another channel. It might, might be on HBO. But it also feels like any one special might have less of an impact than it once did because there's so many of them now. So does it yeah. cut both ways in terms of how it can be a great tool to get noticed, but to get noticed, you have to kind of escape the clutter of all the other comedians who are out there doing streaming specials. One, I love the fact that there are a ton of platforms out there for stand-up comics to go and call their home. I love that. Why, why should there only be one gatekeeper like there was in the past? Because it sucked. There was a lot of comics that needed to get out there and we had to rely on one person or, or one platform. You know what I mean? And it sucked. There was a lot of times where I got passed, you know, and someone else got the, got the green light and I'm just sitting there going, well, what did I do wrong? And, and that sucked because I didn't do anything wrong. It was just like they had to pick and there was only a certain amount of money that they could spend for a certain amount of specials. But now we got all kinds of specials out there and we got a ton of platforms where people can be seen. Yes, there's a lot of crap. And yes, there's a lot of greats. And I love that. Here's something that I am struggling with. So in your yes. movie, Easter Sunday, your character refuses to do an accent in an audition rather than speak 
and what your you and your character's voice is, I guess we could say it's a very Americanized voice. But in yes. your Netflix special in Hawaii, this is something you say. We're going to play a little clip from the Hawaii special. Vietnamese! I love Vietnamese people. You're my... I love you. You're the smallest of the Asians. You're smaller. I had one run up to me at the end of the show. <laughs> hey, dude, what you say to me like that, dude? They talk real fast. You know they talk that fast. They talk like that real fast, like dude. What you say to me like that, dude? They talk real fast, like that, dude. Koreans sound like they've been smoking weed all day. So here's where I'm struggling. You talked about your mom watching cartoons where there's a characterized depiction of an Asian. And now you're making, correct me if I'm wrong, a caricature of what a Vietnamese person sounds like. So why is one bad and one okay? That's a great question, too. Um, One, if you ever seen what my mom saw, it's a horrible caricature. And it was probably written and produced by a white person with the intent to make fun of and make them feel like a cartoon. That was uh, buck tooth with big glasses and closed eyes uh, and the voice being done by a person that's not Asian and saying things like chong hang, pong pong hang. Yes, that, that to me is extremely racist, but if you listen to, to the joke, um, you're going to hear what I say. Only if they have accents, you can tell us apart. That's my way of throwing back to us not being lumped together as one. Now, two, I'm not doing a bad impersonation or a caricature of the Vietnamese uh, accent. It is spot on. Viet- like, once again, man, it's like, Vietnamese people live in this country and they feel invisible. It's that one moment on a huge platform in front of hundreds of millions of people and they, and they sit there and they watch it and they go, that's dope. That's, that's us. He's talking about us and he's doing it in a cool way. Uh, I'll get people that come to me that aren't Asian and they're going, well, then why can't I do it? Because you're doing it in a way where you want to make fun of, and it's offensive. You talked just a second ago about invisibility. There was a study done a year ago by the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative at USC, and they looked at the 100 most popular films over the last 13 years. Asian American and Pacific Islanders accounted for not even 6% of characters in those 1,300 movies. Um, and when you look at leads or co-leads, 3.3%. So obviously the percentage of Asian Americans and APIs is higher than 3.3%. And yet Hollywood yeah. doesn't acknowledge that. So yeah. we know that's a problem. What is the consequence of that problem when people like you or your children might aspire to perform and they don't see themselves in that job? It almost creates a circle where you can't break in because you don't picture yourself as that person. It's like not even a a percentage, like that percentage that you just gave, you might as well just throw it in the trash. You might as well just say zero representation at all. It's like, how do you not recognize the fact that these immigrants come to this country and not only speak their language fluently, 
but damn near speak your language better than you. But yet you're not going to give them any parts, any leads. And I know I keep going specifically to Filipino, but that's because that that's me. You know, that's I'm speaking on behalf of me. But imagine my mom, who I don't hate, I hate to stereotype, but Filipinos are nurses. That's their way. They learn English fluently from birth. They know that's their way out. You know what I mean? Let's let's you know let, let's just put it out there. That's that's our way out. Learn how to speak English. Do good customer service. Get into nursing school and healthcare because that's where the job security is. It's very strategic. And for you to have TV show after TV show after TV show that involves doctors and nurses and not see one nurse being played by a Filipino, it's offensive. It's racist. It's oppressive. That's got to hurt, man. Yeah, I should watch. Bad. I should not watch Grey's Anatomy so closely. <laughs> Joe, this was amazing. I'm so glad it happened. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. That was that was a lot of fun. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. And finally, here's my weekly chat with KPCC Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. This week, we talked about a new leader of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. But first, about Peak TV. Here's my conversation with Suzanne. I'm going to talk about what the Horn Burrow family subscribes to, because that will really get at what I want to talk about. And I'm not making this up. Currently, we pay for Netflix, Amazon, YouTube TV, Apple TV, HBO Max, ESPN Plus, Hulu, Peacock, and Paramount Plus. So on any given night, uh, should we not want to play a family game like Ticket to Ride or Yahtzee or Cribbage or my favorite, Wingspan, we could choose from a nearly infinite list of shows, movies, or sporting events. And that is a problem now. Yes, you can get overwhelmed with the choices. Exactly. And I think there are so many choices right now, it might be too many. Uh, Here's some numbers. Last year, if you count broadcast, cable TV, and streaming platforms, 559 new shows were launched. In just the first half of this year, 357 new shows debuted, which, of course, if you can do the math, 357 times 2 is more than 700. And I'm going to give you a quiz because I'm going to name five reality series. One is a fake. The other four are real. <laughs> so tell me which one I made up. Here they are. Um, actually, it looks like it's six. Um, no, it's five. You have to pick the one fake one. Okay. These are reality series. Yeah. Okay. Family Karma. It's about Indian Americans. Moonshiners. It's about moonshiners in Appalachia. Switcheroo, where contestants switch totally different jobs. Pig Royalty, a competition show about, yes, pigs. And Dark and Dr. Oakley, Yukon Vet, about a vet in the Yukon. 
Family Karma, Moonshiner, Switcheroo, Pig Royalty, Dr. Oakley. Which one's not real? Something smells about pig royalty. Switcheroo, huh? I made up. Pig really, royalty, real the show. Most normal. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the question is, if you have that many shows, is it really sustainable? So John Landgraf, who's the chairman of FX, coined the term peak TV back in 2015, which clearly wasn't the peak for the number of shows. But he said earlier this week that he believes 2022 will be what he calls the high watermark. I'm quoting him now. In other words, that it will be, um, I'm quoting him now, that it will be the peak of peak TV. And if you look around, you're starting to see the signs. Netflix says it's going to focus more on quality rather than quantity in its new shows and movies. Disney has lost billions of dollars, that's billions with a B, in launching its Disney Plus streaming platform. And I should say, you know, Landgraf has been wrong before, and even FX is launching, you know, a show every other week right now. But the real problem are people like me. Like, how many foolish people get that many cable channels or streaming platforms because that's where the growth is going to come from? The people who generally want to subscribe to a streaming service already have right now. And so I have to wonder, John, are so many shows sustainable? No. I mean, I think that's the real problem. I mean, there's the theory of the long tail that there's an audience for, let's say somebody makes Switcheroo, um, and I should maybe be the executive producer. If there's an audience for it, yeah, it might succeed. But that audience has to be big enough to sustain it financially. And when there are, as I said, going to be 700 new shows this year, nobody can watch 50 new shows, probably. So some are going to go by the wayside because the audience just is mathematically impossible to be there for all those shows. Who's carrying that moonshine show that you mentioned? Uh, I don't know what network it's, it's on. I will I will get back to you on that uh, one. Okay, because I've been looking but for something. Make it, they're actually make, they actually make moonshine. I don't know if they get what? lead poisoning in the, in the process. But yeah, if you're looking for moonshine and want to learn how it's made, Moonshiners is your show. All right, great, because I've been looking for something to follow up <laughs> on uh, hillbilly hand fishing. Uh, so let's switch topics now about who is in charge of the organization that hands out the Oscars. What do you know about the new president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Well, it's Janet Yang. Uh, she's the new president. She's a producer. Uh, she's the first Asian woman uh, to head the uh, she's the first Asian person to head the Academy. There's, she's the fourth woman who has run the Academy behind Faye Kanan, Cheryl Boone Isaacs. And if you can picture this, Betty Davis, who <laughs> must have been uh, must have been a lot of work because she resigned as the president of the Academy after two months in the job in 1941. Uh, Janet is an established filmmaker. She has great credits. And I think it really reflects the Academy's push for diversity. Because if you don't have people who come from diverse backgrounds and leadership positions, it's very hard to implement real change for the organization as a whole. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. The associate producer is Sabir Brara, with production assistance this week from Lucy Kopp. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom.
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there.